We do it every day. We search on the internet for some information. Many ask, why is that easy? And yet doing the same thing at my company is hard, sometimes not even possible. And when you do get the data, it's unclear where it's from or the degree you can trust it or use it. In a highly regulated firm, there's even more pressure to select the best approved version of the information. Enter the data catalog. Enterprise data catalogs are essential for searching for data in an organization. Moreover, their creation, maintenance, and design tap into the most fundamental theories of the philosophy of language and the nature of creating knowledge. Today, we are interviewing architect and author Ole Olinson Bagno, who is finishing his first O'Reilly published book called Enterprise Data Catalogs. Today, he will explain what a data catalog is, the different ways computer scientists and information scientists think about searching for data versus searching in data, and how thinking about archiving data for a hundred years can help you create the best data catalog for your business today. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is focused on data, ML, and enterprise software. She has experience as a founder, investor, and product leader, and has worked with both startups and large financial service companies. Jocelyn is currently a senior director of product management for security, a unified data controls company. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Jocelyn Byrne. Hello, Ole. It's nice to see you. Hello, Jocelyn. Uh, nice to see you too. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, we uh, we met when I saw that your book was coming out. Congratulations on the the book, Enterprise Data Catalogs, by from O'Reilly, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and thank you, and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Can we start with a an introduction of uh, yourself uh, first of all, and a little bit about why you decided to write such a book? Yeah, it's a good start. Uh, actually, I'm I'm writing the preface uh, right now, so so it's so it's uh, it's good for me to articulate it. Um, my name is Ole Olsen Benjø. I am an enterprise architect focusing on data. I've been so for the last um, four or five years, give and take. And um, I've also worked as a leader and a specialist in the field of data. I've been heading up a, 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 an information protection department in Danish National Police. And I've working. I've been working right now. I'm working in the GN Store North, it's a Great North Store North in Danish, in Copenhagen, Denmark, in uh, in Northern Europe. And uh, pharmaceuticals is that. What it's uh, it's 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 close enough. Yeah, they produce hearing instruments, so it's oh, they are regulated okay. under under the Food and Drug Administration. Yes, um, and they also produce uh, Jabra's headsets, and uh, they actually just bought Steel Series uh, gaming. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, acoustic engineering that they do. It's a pretty cool company, and I have great colleagues and uh, and, uh, and a great management team. To to, to be honest, uh, it's people that I've worked with uh, prior to to this position and prior to this company also, people that I really like. So I'm I'm quite fortunate. Can't in that wait. Regard. Can't you can't ask for more than that? And you're an enterprise architect with that firm today. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. Yeah, so I get to do a lot of uh, fun stuff actually. 
uh, I think it's a very, very interesting position to be in. And, um, and data is, of course, also very interesting, very difficult. And, uh, I'm distracting you from your main topic. I was asking you to inter- like inter- introduce yourself and I'm the one who's distracting you, but I must say, I'm just picturing, I'm just picturing like the intersection of audio engineers and data architects. It's got to be a good lunchroom conversation. It's very exacting. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. I mean, I'm no good at acoustic engineering, not at all, but it's very interesting to to work in the space. And it's definitely something. So imagine a sector that's very defined by hardware components and what you can press your hardware components to do when they are very, very small and when they're very close to humid areas of the human body. It's pretty difficult. I mean, it's a hard engineering problem. Uh, software yeah. is so much easier. <laughs> I've always done software. Software seems so much easier than, than the medical devices or hardware. Um, so yeah. I, I anyway, anyway. Doing, yeah, yeah. Let's get back to why, uh, yeah. what prompted you to write such a book. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, um, in my previous position, I was also an enterprise architect. And I was, I was given the task of, of looking at this tool that was coined as a data catalog and in fact i had already working with data been working with data catalog but i was i was like i was puzzled about the sales material that that i was like going through from various windows i I couldn't really i mean there were there were a lot of features in there that i just like it they spoke about data lineage and how you could visualize everything in a graph and all pretty cool stuff. I mean, I was very, I was very intrigued by it, and I thought it was obvious that we needed such a tool. But I was also just very struck by, and this, this is going to come out a little blunt, frankly. But, but I was struck by the fact that they didn't really describe their technology. It, 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 quite frankly, it was as if they didn't really understand their their own technology. They, they described a lot of features in the technology, but what was the technology itself? What did it really do as, a, as as the main capability? And as I was thinking about that, I uh, I was actually sitting in a in a hot office uh, room uh, all alone, uh, like this big uh, room with 20, 20 desks in it. Uh, and I had this epiphany that, and it's not very original. I, I have to imagine uh, people uh, being a little skeptic about me saying this, but and I had this epiphany, at least for myself, that that this is really a data catalog is a search engine for companies. That's really what it is. It it, it lets you search for data. Um, and so as I was sitting here in in the in the office all by myself, I just I just had this feeling that I, I could write a book about this because. This is very interesting. It's a it's a subject that that has not been described in this way. This the data catalog has not been described as a as a search engine. I mean, what it really means to to be a search engine, and then think about it: a search engine for companies. That's something that's something quite new. Of course, at this point, we we call it a data catalog because. Originally, it was an inventory of the data in the company, but as technology evolved, it got to be about connectors or how you could pull or push data from uh, various sources. You could also see documents uh, described at a metadata level, uh, files of various sorts in there. And then, so if it's a, it's a, if it's a search engine, then then it's something very new that we need to think about. And so that was what made me write the book. 
I want to talk a little bit more about that um, because I do like this idea and I want to come back to it of um, the bounded context of what part of data cataloging is the technology and then what part is the human thought, language, information, organizing part, right? Because I think that's one of the themes I'm picking up in your book and some of the other interviews you've done is that from your perspective, it's a human, more of a human activity than a technical one. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Um, it is. I mean, that's where the problem, for me, that's that's where many of the unsolvable problems in data is, really. That's the human side, yeah. not the technical side. And, and when you say it's a search engine for a company's data, um, talk a little bit about, I just stumbled across this, of uh, the searching for data or searching in data. Because I oh, think it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jocelyn, for having picked up on that. Yeah. So the difference here is that, uh, okay, so where to start? I, the difference between searching for data and searching in data is something that I have had quite a success with explaining. People tend to, to think it's a nice distinction. And so I've been repeating it. And, and the difference is really that, that when you search in data, you use database query languages like SQL and you search in databases. You use technically you use the database management system to query inside the database, right? And you get results when you query. Um, and so people have been used to thinking about searching data like this because the data catalog evolved in the computer science field and in um, uh, adjacent fields. So so searching data was perceived as something that would become difficult once we queried uh, with database query languages. But I, I think I didn't get to say that in the introduction about myself. I have a PhD in the in information science, and I, so I come from this library and information science background. It's also pretty tech, but, but, but not like computer science. And I just worked in departments that were pretty tech and I got more and more tech uh, as I did that and um, and that's that made me realize that the way I've been trained in searching data is is something else than searching in data it's searching for data searching for data happens before searching in data now when you're searching oh. for yeah you keep going okay you're searching for data when you're searching for data then you're searching about sources. You're searching for sources that contain data. So you wouldn't be searching in the data inside the database. You would be searching for the database itself. You're trying to find the most relevant sources wherein you can do your search in data. That's searching for data. And that's significant, data. right? That's significant in our new distributed cloud world. I think it's like, why does, you know, when you talk about searching for data, it is a different, I know you're in information science, like it is a different thing. Yeah, um, provably different, but also it's getting harder. Why is that? Um, yeah, so technically, technically, I don't really know if I'm a, if I agree that it's getting harder. I mean, the te- the the methodologies that you're using is 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 the same, but as it always been. Um, but I think it's getting harder. I think you're right, though. Jocelyn, that it's getting harder. But the reasons why is is that this discipline is becoming needed in inside an ecosystem that hasn't really fathomed what is a, what it is about yet. So 
so so that is perhaps why it is becoming more difficult like i have been i've used a lot of time trying to explain the data catalog for example to data engineers to to other technical people that they're not searching in data here they can do that certain data catalogs also very good data catalogs allow for you to to do database query languages inside a virtualized environment inside the data catalog and that's that's really cool and if you have this if you have a use case that 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 can defend that, then 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 please go ahead and do that. But but um, but that's not all there is to search in a data catalog. In fact, that's not the most important part of search in a data catalog. That is searching for data. And searching for for data is something that is um, as a discipline uh, has been taking. It's it's been it's been done in. In disciplines where I have worked, so in data archives, uh, in 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 also in more physical kind of archives like records and information management archives. When I started my career, I I I, I already began uh, when I began working 15 years ago, uh, when I was in my 20s. I archived a lot of data already at that point, but I also archived uh, or cataloged mice. Uh, like uh, you know, from from the labs, I worked in a medical uh, in the pharmaceutical company. So I cataloged I, I cataloged paper. I cataloged uh, I cataloged human human tissue. You know, I, I cataloged a lot of stuff. Technology. Before we get into the like technology implicate like, applications, the notion of cataloging. I was telling you that in the early days of the internet, when it was coming, like the web, uh, creating large scale websites, we used to always go to library science people who could help us organize web, each part of the website. Because in the early days, it was just an org chart on the web and that nobody cared about that and it was awful. And so <laughs> the idea of like, how do we you know, have buckets of information that people naturally would come to and search for, right? Um, library science people were the only people who knew that. So talk about cataloging before software. What, why do we catalog? Yeah, so there's this beautiful, beautiful uh, quote that uh, my editor don't think I should use in the book. Um, from, 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 yeah, from uh, Jorge, the 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 Argentinian um, uh, writer Jorge Luis Borges. He said that if the library is a mirror of the world, then the catalog is a mirror of that mirror. And that may sound a little spacey, but the idea here is that, yeah, thank you. So the idea here is that you have a collection of something in a, in a, you have, you have a collection of something. Say it's books. Then we call it a library. That's, if you, if you, if you like do a, a complete collection, then it mirrors the world or the universe. And so to navigate that mirror, you need another mirror because you can't, you can't. You simply can't orient yourself in in this entire structure. You can't see what's up and down here, where to go to find a specific topic. So you need an entry, uh, a gateway to this mirror, and that's another mirror. That's the catalog. So a catalog has also always been something very concrete that describes a concrete collection of something. Uh, contrary to stuff that library sciences back in the day called bibliographies, lists of things that weren't located anywhere, but we knew existed in the world. Taxonomies, stuff like that. 
So a catalog is something very specific. It describes a specific collection of, of stuff, and, and it also uh, offers a, a way to, to find the, all this stuff. That's a catalog. And that reflection of, the, of you know, that mirror, mirror image of the mirror image is the metadata, really, right? That's contained in that catalog. And so um, now let's take the example of, okay, we're back in the technology world. If you, if I came to you and I was, and I said, uh, hey, listen, um, I've got a lot of data in several different departments of my organization. Some of it is on-prem, some of it's in the cloud, some of it's structured, some of it's unstructured, some of it is used by really fancy data scientists. Some of the rest of it's used for like people who just do very quick visualization of analytics. And I think I need, I think I need a data catalog. <laughs> so if I came to you like green fields, there's nothing there. Well, how would you advise me to get started with my data catalog? Um, if you came to me uh, with that kind of use case, uh, I would provide an answer that uh, that I think is pretty consistent with the advice I normally give, but it would deviate a little bit, uh, I think, <laughs> because people. Oh, let me say. Let me know, say. A, you know, let me say a domain. Let me say a domain. Let's say it's car parts. Yeah, basically. So, so, so the first thing you want to do is, of course, you want to do a vendor assessment, but, but, but. But let's take that aside and say, okay, you, you've chosen your vendor. You, you've got an excellent vendor that match, matches your uh, IT landscape. What you want to do is you want to, at that point, what you want to do, the tricky part, uh, is to map your domain. That's that's like the most important thing for you to do because how you organize your domain defines where you place uh, the various metadata uh, in your data catalog. And so the defining structure would be called collections or um, domains and subdomains. And those need to be de defined by, so this is information architecture or data architecture. And you need to, you need to define your domain in stable containers. One of the things that I often see is that people do domain mappings as a mirror of the organization. That's another, uh, and that's not a very good thing to do. I've encountered that as well. And it gets tricky. It gets tricky. I, here's why I think it gets tricky. And I'm now I'm using terminology that's really from your world. So don't call me out for being a hypocrite. But um, it's a category error over time uh, because the data that's flowing through one organization and into another um, may have one character, at, but you're switching the categories by moving it to different domain, subdomain di that are really different lines of business. So let's say I have one data flow that's coming through, um, I just said car parts, you know, it's coming through servicing, but I'm sending it into the sales organization. Well, now I have two different classifications for the same flow. And so like, that's what I typically see that doesn't work is when you do the domain subdomain according to org or line of business, you get less insight over time. Yeah, yeah. I have... Uh... I, I agree with that, Jocelyn. I, I think one of the other issues uh, at hand is uh, is the fact that 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 org charts are not stable containers. So, in terms of information architecture, uh, it's always nice. Uh, how can I say that? So, so back to back to the catalog and 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 the mirror of the mirror, right? 
we need a stable mirror of the mirror. We need something that does not change over time. So we need stable containers for our, for our data. If not, we're forced to push it back and forth between business units that are created and uh, merged and like dissolved all the time. So we need something very stable. So, so I always uh, advise, and that's the advice I put forward in my book also, that domain design should be done on something stable. And I have two propositions, either capabilities that should be stable or processes. And processes are something that you can say a process is in fact just a, a sub part of a capability. A capability consists of people, process, and technology. Yeah, but I think right? that's 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 and that's expressed. Humane, though, right, because some things are really about the process. You don't have to be too strict. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so processes are they also pretty clearly defined uh, in, in certain industries because they have to due to inspection, uh, like re re due to regulations. And so, so processes are also quite stable containers, and you can use those to to uh, to create collections where you can add metadata. And and you need stable containers because you can't move your data around all the time; it gets unmanageable so, very very fast. So I, okay, you can go on. Stable containers. Uh, yeah, but I was just yeah. So I was just saying that I think you're right. Also, though, Jocelyn, that. That one of the issues is that the data moves around, but it's a very, very complex topic. And, and so the way I approach this topic personally is that in, in talking about domains, you have pretty much two, two ways to, to approach this topic and, and, and a very dominant topic, uh, the way to approach the topic is domain driven design that began way back with uh, Eric Evans' book. Uh, I think it was just called, like this blue book, everyone has the blue book. It was called um, Domain-Driven Design, I think, simply. Um, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's coming back big time, right? Uh, they call it the DDD for data, right? Domain-Driven Design for Data. I think it's a very cool, uh, like, methodology and mindset, a very interesting theory. Uh, that said, it's difficult. So it's it's very becoming very popular because of data mesh. Data mesh promotes uh, domain-driven design for data, and rightly so. There's nothing wrong in it. I I really love uh, <laughs> domain-driven design. I have nothing against it. But but if you want to organize a yeah, there is a bud coming, and and the, and the bud that's coming is that is that it's it's not it's not very it's not very suited. Uh, for mapping domains at a metadata level, simply because domain-driven, the essence of of domain-driven design is to depict how data flow uh, inside a domain and between domains. That's the idea. You want to orchestrate software that supports a business process at a, a domain in doing something, and that's 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 exactly what you should do with, with domain-driven design. But if you want to do it for data, the problem is that. You can definitely do that at the physical layer, but but if you want to have a metadata layer, like a a conceptual layer on top of that, you can't map domains like that simply because it's an unnavigable structure. If you want to have a complete picture of all the domains in your company, because you simply can't let that structure be defined by how data flows between certain subparts so of those domains. So you need this kind domains. of protected. Um 
what should I say, reusable containers for your data that's either driven by the, like the, the workflow, as you said, um, or the domain. And then you can have all these different uh, services, different uh, jobs to be done, calling on that meta metadata. But that metadata can't change based on what the individual job to be done is. Is that what I'm hearing? I think I said that in a really backwards way. So, um, so it's, <laughs> well, it's just that. I, no, 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 not at all. I think it's just that I have a. I guess what I'm saying I, is you're saying it yeah. has to be both I, we, I didn't get it anyway. <laughs> you said that hey, it's got to be strategic. The way that you uh, you know lay out the the catalog, it's got to be strategic and domain driven. Um, you're also, I think, saying it has to be modular enough that right that all these different say services or capabilities can call on that data and use it in different use cases effectively. And the the way you operationalize that is the metadata. Yeah. So, so, but, but also just, I think you're completely right in all this, Jonathan, but I'm also thinking of like, like, I'm also simply thinking of the functionality of the data catalog itself when I'm giving this kind of advice. You want a very modular uh, domain map because you, you want to, you want to maximize the, the capability of, of search. In a in a data catalog, so if you wanna if you wanna do that, you need to to very precisely um, define the data that that you're cataloging in terms of where it belongs and and what it does. If 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 um, <laughs> yeah, that's a very very good question. But uh, in my book, I I like put forward this this uh, can you call it a step by step guide at least i th i think that the best way to do this is to define the domains going from the highest level to the most concrete level and that at that level you uh, push or pull the relevant data sources into this uh, subdomain uh, you provide descriptions of the collections of possibly of the most important assets and you enrich those assets uh, also with the uh, other metadata uh, that is uh, people so various roles that are assigned to to these uh, data sources and also um, uh, glossary terms to in improve uh, searchability that all sounds great but a lot of companies don't know some of those things right <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you work with that? So, yeah, yeah so, but, you know, but that, you're getting your data. You can probably, there's a lot of organizations who sort of hand tie all the data into the catalog and they have a person declaring the metadata. That's great, but hard to scale. And then you could scan it with a scanner that makes some, the machine will infer what the metadata should be. And write it to the catalog. Do you do you do you see? Yeah, go ahead. No oh, apologies. This is a good conversation. I'm just getting yeah, me too. Excited. <laughs> so sorry. Sorry for yeah. Sorry for cutting. Sorry for cutting you off. Uh, um, 
yeah, most most data catalogs today they work like that. They either pull or push data automatically into the data catalog. So at the point where it enters the catalog, it becomes the metadata representing the data in the data source. And so so it has derived metadata from that is actually just data from the data source, but it's only like, imagine a schema, right? You would have uh, the schema name, you would have the column names. Right, so that's, that's this it. baseline metadata, and then you're saying there's this advanced metadata, right, that you could continue, continue to add. Yeah. I think you briefly touched on this in a, in a different, in a, uh, somewhere I read this about, um, and I love this term, folksonomies. This, is that the kind of thing that you're adding? Mm -hmm. Taxonomy, ontology, folksonomy, is that related to this advanced metadata? Yeah, it is, it is. That's the glossaries, in fact. But but normally, and that's where I think an area where, where data catalogs need to improve. Quite frank, quite frankly, <laughs> I have I have a couple of, uh, of, of issues where I think uh, uh, where I think data catalogs should really improve, and this is one of them. So, so normally, when you when you have it, so so imagine me at my daily work, and I'm a data engineer working in the data catalog. I have a possibility to assign term the glossary terms to a to a data asset. I have this uh, SQL table that I want to, to to give a glossary term. I have one option in. I guess pretty much all data catalogs I've seen. And that option is to tag. And I can press the tag button and, and I can give my asset a tag. <laughs> and personally, I just I really I really don't like this. This is not an this is not this is not good enough. I mean and this is this is my background speaking, but glossary terms are they are underestimated um and they are not well understood by the, the computer science community and and uh, and the data science community to to be honest uh, i think i know that glossaries are uh, something that you need to take very seriously in terms of something very specifically that is the level of control they have in, in library information science, you talk about bibliographic control. It's it's a pretty horrible term, but but what it means is that what it what it yeah <laughs> exactly right yeah, horrible. But anyway uh, anyway uh, anyway, it's uh, the idea is that you can have more or less control of of a of a vocabulary. You also talk about controlled vocabularies as you talk. That's a detailed part of bibliographic control. And controlled vocabularies is something where you go from something very uncontrolled, like folksonomies, into something that is very controlled. And the reason why this is important is because they they serve different purposes in terms of organizing data and searching data. And it's very easy to understand once you once you get the like the mechanics of it. So a, a folksonomy is something that everyone participates in creating. It's a list of words that are completely without rules. And we have very important folksonomies out there and very important hashtags in those folksonomies. Folksonomies are made up of hashtags pretty, pretty much all are. And so one of the most important hashtags, and I of course mention it in my book, but I, it's, it's me too. So, so speaking in semantic terms, me too is, is a hashtag that that like if you don't know the context of it it doesn't make any sense uh, 
but that's strictly because you don't know the context. It makes enormous amount of sense, and 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 it it's a hashtag that I am very happy got so much attention. But it is something that is from a control from like from a from the perspective of of a controlled vocabulary. It is it is it is uncontrolled and uh, without so if context. So I was just, if I just landed here, alien person from Mars, and I saw hashtag Me Too, I wouldn't know. But those of us who are in our in this particular group of in this society, we have a way of understanding that that's different. Yeah, and so think of this in terms of search. Me Too has a lot of value when we're searching for. Uh, data or information, whatever. But if you were to advise someone to build a system that said, okay, you can tag something, um, then your natural response wouldn't be, okay, well, let's have no rules. Let's just have people write whatever they want. You want to have a certain level of control. But in fact, no control holds a lot of quality, as we can see. But then, so does control. The other side of the spectrum also holds a lot of quality because you need you need a control vocabulary in order to understand a context that you do not have that you have not found is yourself the most in. controlled is the other side of the coin ontology. So you've got folksonomy the least controlled. What what what, what yeah it is, it is, but 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 the problem here is that ontologies are like it's one of those many, many uh, concepts that are defined differently in library information science and in computer science. So when computer science, yeah, so com when computer scientists hear that, yeah, they it is. And, and so I guess that the vast majority of the listeners of this postcard, podcast will be computer scientists or, or, or similar persons, right? So when they hear ontology, they have something else than is described in library information science. And so this is not the, the, the most... I, I don't know what the differences are. Yeah, so, so the most controlled vocabulary would be called a thesaurus, and that would also be called an ontology in certain parts of library information science. And, science. and the difference is, uh, to be a little like nitty-gritty, the difference is that in a thesaurus you only have... Um, terminology that is related in very specific ways. Now, an, an ontology can have, uh, it has nodes and edges, uh, technically speaking, uh, and those nodes and edges are defined uh, in certain ways. But the structure is flexible. You can define any node having any edge with another node in the way you want. But uh, in a controlled vocabulary, that is not the case. You have a strict set of relations between terms. So you have a central term that is called the preferred term, and that term can have it can have broader terms, it can have narrow terms, it can have variant terms, and it can have associated terms. That's it. So that's the difference. That's the difference. Uh, but but like traditionally, library information science would call that an ontology, and and like many other things, this is one of the like small misunderstandings that have have uh, personally, I think that 
that this is like one of the reasons why data catalogs have become so difficult to explain. It's because it's these two fields, library information science and, and computer science, they've tried to, to like merge their thinking into a technology and, and they, they haven't had the exact same uh, understanding of the concepts that they were trying to, um, to work together to create a solution for. And, and that has like, that has just not fully evolved yet. Uh, so the, it's the same thing with the searching for and the searching in. Like I'm, I'm used to searching for data. I've done it all my life, and I've searched, I've searched for data like, like you wouldn't believe. And and uh, and uh, computer scientists, they've searched in data, and they have thought that this is the only way you can search and search data. It's searching in data when you when you query a database, but that's just not the case. So, so there are many of these small, small misalignments that have, like, affected. I think so far, at least, the, the technology of a data catalog. So you've explained that uh, people who do information and library science have a different approach, right, from the software developers and engineers who are thinking about searching in data versus searching for data. Well, how do you? And you may not have an opinion on this. How do you think the like the IT buyer? the enterprise leader who needs to buy a data catalog or, you know, tell people we're going to do this. How do you think they're thinking about data catalogs at the moment? Or how should they be thinking about it? Ah, uh, yeah. The, the, the last question is perhaps uh, easier to answer, Jocelyn, because it's a, it's a big question, right? Uh, I mean, uh, on a global scale, I, I, would I, just say this. I, I mean, don't know how... I would how... say that when I look across all of the writing and, and the discussion around catalogs right now, I do worry that um, IT buyers see it as a silver bullet for solving a lot of problems, and that worries me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's the only way you can push these kind of technologies. It's like it's by claiming that all your problems are gonna go away. But that that, that is the case. But <laughs> yeah, no. But you're right. You're right. I think data catalogs are. It's a really good tool. It's a really bad name, and it will do some of the things it promises to do, but not all of them. Right. To to be honest. Um. I I hate I, I hate I hate when no, yeah okay so I shouldn't be that yeah, passionate. That's what we want to talk about. That's what uh, we're going okay. on. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Cool. Cool. I like it. I like it. Um, so 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 I really I really yeah. So let me say it out open. I I, I hate when when certain data catalog promoters are selling the data catalogs as if it can solve every kind of data issue that a, that a company has. It's not a data sharing agreement system. It's not a CMDB. It's not an integration re uh, repository. It's not going to replace your SCCM uh, and so on and so on. It's just, it's a search engine for data. That's the main focus of a data catalog. Now that comes with a certain set of special features underneath. You want to have a data lineage. You want to have a visualization, preferably a knowledge graph-based uh, visualization of your meta model. And uh, you want to have a few other things inside such a tool. But it is a search engine, and you should cater for search when you implement and use a data catalog strategically. 
And you can, of course, and, and so the reason why I, 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 I get frustrated, you I get frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the reason why I, 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 I get a little passionate here is because I think that many vendors are selling um, data catalogs either as a feature on top or as uh, as a main feature with a lot of other features around it. So. It's not. It's never ever gonna be your um, preferred BI right, right, tool, right. right? It's not a BI. It's, it's not, not a BI scan tool. Scanning, so, detecting, classifying. It's not <laughs> really doing any of those things. Um, it's it. It's just. It's just. A, it's just. An, it's. It's not. So it, there's a lot of things. It's not. It's. It's. And and I. I think that you can you can definitely discuss it, whether or not a data catalog should be as, as, as an as like like an independent or uh, application in itself, or if if it's just part of of a bigger uh, platform. I I I totally like don't mind it being part of a bigger platform or suite or whatever you want to call that, but it's just the catalog itself. Is a search engine. You need to be able to effectively search for data. Nothing more. Nothing less. I think that's less. right. I asked you what advice you can't to give do you. That, oh, sorry. If you can't do that, yeah. If, if it can't, if it can't do that, it's not a data catalog. <laughs> I was going to say that's frankly. the advice I would give. I think I'm hearing <laughs> in between the lines here is that to be really crisp about the bounded context. When you say you're buying or implementing a data catalog, to be super clear about what is that bounded context. What are the ancillary capabilities that Maybe you should be getting elsewhere, right? Um, and let me ask you this. Should you have, um, can you have only one data catalog or can there be multiple that work in harmony in some way? What's your thought on that? Yeah, so in the ideal world, there would only be one data catalog, but but that is not the case. Um, and there's a multitude of reasons why it's not the case. Um I can give yeah. you a couple. I mean, it makes sense to me. You've got like a, I don't think I have like a multinational, right? They've got huge, huge organizations that may not—it simply may not be possible to use one. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a little honest here. I, I, uh, oh, really? Uh, they have a lot of say in terms of titles and subtitles of of books. Uh, and 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 quite justly so, right? That's their publishing house. Um, I I I think that the enterprise data catalog. My book has the title Enter the Enterprise Data Catalog. Is both correct? Uh, I embrace the title. I like it. But it's also something that not everyone will get. Not everyone will get an enterprise data catalog. For exactly some of the reasons that we're discussing here, right? Because because they will never reach a state where they can, like, imagine being one of the the biggest pharma companies of the world. They have like half a million employees. You can never never like get an overview of that IT landscape, the data in that IT landscape in one application. It would be fantastic if you could, and I definitely support. I support that vision. But like the pragmatic uh, approach wouldn't be to to say let's 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 try to pull all the metadata from our entire IT landscape from this company of of, of a half a million employees. Uh, it's 
it's very, very difficult to do that. I mean, you can try, and and I hope certain companies have have achieved that level. I, I haven't seen I haven't seen it. But and then there's also a lot of other reasons, and it's actually another it's another topic, perhaps for another book. But like what what happened this last decade, uh, at least with data, uh, in the way I have worked with data, is that more and more repositories popped up because more and more roles popped up. So all of a sudden, cybersecurity was becoming a risk. That happened prior to a decade ago, I know. But but the chief information security officer, as, as a person, as a role in a company, uh, began to, I don't know exactly when, when that role began to materialize, but but the role that chief information security officer needed a tool that had a list of all the information in the company so that they could do their information security risk assessments, right? Um, and that's pretty much a data catalog with a lot of, with a lot of things on top. And it may not be that technolo- technologically advanced a data catalog, but it is a list of all the data in the company. Because you can't do any, you can't you can't do any information protection if you don't have like a, an overview of the information you, that you have in your company, right? And so the same thing with the DPO, the data protection officer. What is the first thing that a DPO wants to do? They want to have a tool. They have an overview of all the data in the company, and that is, for better or worse, some kind of data catalog. Now you can just expand that. You have a you have a, a chief data uh, officer. I have this I have this concept actually. I think we're getting a little off the manuscript here, but I I, I like where the conversation is going. Is going. You have to stop me, Jocelyn, if you don't. But I have this concept of the empirical CDO. The empirical CDO for me is someone that actually knows the data of of of, of their company. How many empirical CDOs do we have in this world? <laughs> what do you mean by empirical? You mean that they they actually really know? They like, really <laughs> they can claim real numeric like they no. So if, imagine imagine having a chief financial officer saying, "I don't right. know how yeah. money how so much exactly money this know. company so has." So empirical in that they exactly know. So not only where it is, what it is, I but would, how to describe I, it. I would expect if 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 you want to be part of a C suite. And you work with data, you better know your data. Well, I can't disagree with that, right? Because um, I work in data and software. But the problem with data is there's always some portion of it that's messed up. Like that's why I came from the software world, <laughs> where at some point there's this notion of internal correctness, right? Um, something's provably correct or it isn't. Data is never going to fit into that mold. There's always some, is, even the best managed data has some portion of it that's a mess. Or not good, not as good as it should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to uh, promote a view that that said that I could change this. I, I, I really, I really don't. I really don't. I like the idea that, of the empirical but I just CEO. Think... I mean, I, I've never said anything that bold. Uh, that is a bold statement. Uh, <laughs> good vision. I would say, you know, I like what you're saying though too. Is that there? In, I think there's an opportunity in a lot of companies. Some companies are doing this very, very well uh, to get that that cyber risk ethics CDO like kind of uh, virtual cycle of individuals who all care about that good list of where the data is and what it is. Um, you know, I, I do feel like these are siloed activities in some cases. 
Um, that, that worries me when you get to data because you want things to be as, as close to comparable as possible. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of the, you know, this organization thinks it's a customer, this organization thinks it's a client, you know, that gets, it gets out of whack pretty quickly in terms of how people are talking about the data, even if it's the same. So, um, so I like what you're saying about having one, one empirical notion to work from. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think CDOs have a very, very difficult role to play. Right. But, but it, I gotta, I gotta say it's, it, I, it must be the first or at least one of the first C-suite roles where not knowing the area where you, that you're responsible for is an acceptable, acceptable condition. Yeah. That's either the worst or best thing about it. I'm not sure. <laughs> From a career perspective, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's at least it's at least like it, it puts whatever strategic initiative you want to do in a somewhat dubious light. But anyway, yes, that wasn't topic, the, but I <laughs> So yeah, I like this yeah. idea of the catalog. Yeah. You know, it, it is becoming more and more important as we have more and more data. It's more democratized, and you have more and more people in the organization, right? Who who need that good list of not, you know, what is in, what is in the data? What, what happens as data changes? Is there anything about catalogs we should think about? Because over time, the data could, like how you think, like how you classify the data, the language that you use to describe the data can change over time. Is, is that something that you address in the book? It is something that I address in the book, yes, uh, in multiple ways. So, and I have an entire chapter about it, actually, that's called Life Cycles. Um, I'm very focused on life cycles because I think life cycles is a quite magnificent key to understand a lot of problems with data. So so data life cycles have been depicted in in, in many, many different ways. The way I depict it in my book is is faithful to one of the most original concepts that goes back at least a couple of decades. Um, it's called POSMAD. So it claims that data goes through the cycle that's called plan, obtain, store and share, uh, uh, maintain, apply, and dispose. So all data goes through this life cycle, and depending on where it is and it's in its life cycle, something happens to it or is done with it. And um, and of course, data will change over time. But 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 that is a given fact. That is not something that we should try to prevent. But we could. But we can understand it. And um, and 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 trying to understand that is something that will yeah makes. I'm going in circles here. Make us understand data better, but but so the way so the way I I address it in my book is that data catalogs. That's one of the other things where I think data catalogs should evolve, should evolve a little bit, because I don't think that data catalogs are correctly uh, addressing this element of a data life cycle. Um, they have no status of, of, of the of, of the data it, they're depicting. They're just, and many data catalogs are just depicting data in mm -hmm. production, right? 
but that does not give you a complete picture of the data in your company. And and I guess I guess uh, <laughs> we established that we will never get that complete picture, right? But we can expand. We can, we can tend expand toward it. We can tend toward and, it. Uh, <laughs> we can. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, so one it's of like the being things a good person, you, you never get there. You can just try to be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's and it's in, in in the way we're trying to become a better persons that that the world is getting a little better each day, right? <laughs> but uh, but um, you could you could, for example, expose data that is um, from development uh, environments. You could expose data that has been archived, and so on. Because that would give you a com- more complete picture of of the of the data life cycle of where data is not yet in production and where it is has been discarded or simply uh, put into an archive. That's interesting. For, as that for like a set of data, but it'd be interesting that, to see at a company level too for all of your data. Where is it spending most of its time? Um, that's interesting. I like that. Um, but we didn't get to talk about. Um, I want to make sure we talked about all the spicy topics. Do you have any other spicy catalog uh, opinions that we should cover? Spicy uh, catalog opinions. Um, I think we covered most of them. I didn't get to talk about my concerns about ontologies, but that's okay. We can save that for another another day. We talked a little bit about that. I think the ontology, you know, the idea of an ontology, and maybe I'm glad you talked about definitions. Maybe I'm getting them mixed up, but I feel like a lot of firms I've you know worked with over the last twenty years, uh, it kind of swings in a cycle of centralized, decentralized. At some point, they're like, everybody just talk about your data however you want. You're all two individual snowflakes. That's fine. Um, and then everyone's like, well, now we can't find anything. So <laughs> we're going to create a document, like a definition of every type of data, and you must tag everything by hand. Um, or it doesn't really matter about the ta- who tags it, but I guess this idea that there's one structured definition of how we talk about our business Um I, I love the idea, but in practice, I think it's very hard to implement. It is. I'm I'm going to to cite another book uh, than my own book. Uh, I'm I'm reading uh, <laughs> one of the best. There are so so few books better than mine. <laughs> no, no. Riley, well, um, we'll just turn off your podcast uh, right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, it's actually a book from O'Reilly. Uh, it's uh, Joe Reed and uh, Matt Hughesley, uh, Fundamentals of Data Engineering. I'm reading this book. Oh, uh, right yeah, now, I started I that. I think you recommended it to me before. I think I, I started it. Oh, perhaps. Yeah, uh, I, could ha- uh, I forgot about it, but, but, but perhaps, yeah. Anyway, it's a good book, and I, I found this. Uh, I found this cool description of data that can be either hot and cold. I, I don't know if you've heard that uh, that description, but hot data is something that, that changes a lot. It has a lot of activity to it, streaming data, live data. And cold data is, uh, is, is data from when it's like stored in, in archives and, and no one queries it. Perhaps very, very rarely they look into something because of compliance reasons. And I come from, I'm, 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 I'm coming to you from the cold, cold world of data. That's where I come from, Jocelyn. It, 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 it was the coldest place in the data world, uh, where I, where, where I grew up. And, uh, and that made me think about a lot of things that people working with hotter data have not thought about a lot. 
And so one of those things is, for example, dive cycles. Because when you work in these environments where you have to keep data for like, imagine keeping data for the life of a pharmaceutical product is perhaps like 20, 30 years. So the life of a product plus 50 years. Because that's the life, that's the lifespan, expected lifespan of a patient, right? Um, keeping that data for that amount of time is something where you have to think about a lot of things. And that was like, that's my background. Uh, that's how I got into like, well, how can you say it? Tech, quite frankly, quite frankly. And so when you organize data in that way, you have to think about a lot of things. You have to, you have to think ahead, not one day, not one year, not even a decade, but several decades ahead. How are we going to store this data? Like physically, how can we do a file format that can stand the test of time for several decades? And how are we going to describe the data that is in here so that it can be searched in a functional way by someone that has to humanly understand, okay, now I'm searching for this kind of data. I have to use these keywords and this uh, like approach. So, so, so that's, that's, if I may say so, that's like, <laughs> that's, that, that's a little bit how I was, how I was trained. And I think that data catalogs and the way you're describing here, going from like centralization to decentralization, I have a strong, strong, uh, skepticism about being too yeah, both. Uh, yeah, it's it's gonna come a little uh, out a little weird, but I have I'm a, I'm skeptic towards being decentralized in the way that you do not have any centralized. Uh, I won't say governance, but methodology around how you organize uh, and describe uh, metadata. But at the same time, I am also very very skeptic about the idea that we can get everything under control and that we will at some point reach a perfect order where everything will be totally f um, searchable. I, I don't believe, I, I think that defies human language, quite frankly. It's not, it's not built into the human in, built into human languages is the possibility that something can be interpreted in a different way than it was intended. That's a fundamental uh, feature of human language. And when when people that have uh, science backgrounds that are used to work with the laws of physics uh, organize data and do software for data, they do not take this factor into account because they come from a world where the laws of physics can describe exactly what is going to happen, when it's going to happen, and what you can do for that not to happen. But language, and fundamentally data is language. Language is, is something different. You, you can't get it under control to that level. Uh, you can't get it that level of control. Yeah, I love that thinking about data as language. Um, I like I like that a lot. Um, it's a better analogy because it is unruly in the same way. <laughs> it, 
It is. It is. So there are certain things that you can do and certain things that you will never achieve. But but that's pretty much the space that I see. So so decentralized and centralized, of course, is a topic that, that pops up a lot. Um, I... I I do think so 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 let's get back to the idea of the glossaries here. If you want to if you want to have a if you want to have a data catalog that is a search engine that allows you to search for data. You want to have glossaries that are as free as you possibly can. The foxonomies where you can just tag away. But at the same time you want something that is highly controlled both in domains and on a global level in your company. Because all those three levels, they improve the overall searchability searchability of your data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, very interesting. You know, I was telling you, I was thinking about the dictionaries and slang. My husband worked uh, for the Webster's Dictionary. And um, one of the things he did is figure, he was on a group of people who figured out when a word gets in the dictionary. Like sometimes, come, you know, things come out of usage, Right. Um, and you, you do need both, right? You need a serious dictionary that is the arbiter of what, what, (laughs) what is worthy of getting classified, but then you need slang and usage and people come up with words, right? And ways of defining words on their own. Uh, and there has to be some way to, um, uh, some way to graduate it out of informal slang into a more formal language, um, and I, there's no one there can't be it can't be so strict i guess is what i'm saying there it's a little bit more of an art than a science <laughs> of what it, it is it is but if you want to have like maximum searchability for something tomorrow then you would want to um take into account slang street language whatever we call this foxonomy but if you want something to be searchable 50 years from now you need a higher degree of control. I like what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you need a higher degree of control. And I love, um, sorry, I interrupted you, but I would just say uh, what I see as a big theme in everything that you've talked about is this idea of future person. Person I don't even know, future person, person in another department, person downstream of me, um, being thoughtful about their experience and their ability to connect with the data that you're, the pages that you're archiving under glass or, or the data that you're analyzing and putting into the the lake. Right. Uh, I love that idea of thinking about that downstream, the next person, whether they're coming in a hundred years or they're coming in hot in the next 10 seconds. (laughs) Uh, you know, I like that. Exactly. Exactly. It should be, it should be cater for both very, very hot and very, very cold. We're going a little over time, but I wanted to switch gears a little bit because I think a lot of our uh, podcast uh, listeners and subscribers might um, think about writing an O'Reilly book. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about uh, how you came to write an O'Reilly book and then what was that experience like? Yeah, so so I, I uh, it's... It's a long story, but to make it short. And also, we have to have you come write this book. (laughs) Of of course, they did, Jocelyn. People call me like that every day. (laughs) No, no, no. That was not at all that. Uh, I got to talk. I won't mention his name because I haven't asked him. No, no, I just think, Jocelyn, just give us a sense of how it works. Yeah, I, I got to. 
I got to talk to a person that had written an O'Reilly book, and I was just mentioning that I had this idea, and he said, I can introduce you to an editor. And uh, I pitched my idea, and it took uh, quite a while for the idea to get like processed. They have this entire system. And then finally the book was accepted, and uh, that was... That was super cool, of course. It's uh, I have taught at the uh, at the University of Copenhagen, here where I live, uh, for several years. Uh, after I did my PhD, I've used uh, O'Reilly books for that, of course. I have always found that their books have such a high quality, and so getting accepted there is something that I was very, very proud of, of course. I think it's extremely great. And, um, I mean, I, I I totally agree. Like, I think they're great books. I'm just picturing the moment where you've kind of, you've made it. They're like, yes, please. We've got everything sorted. We want you to write the book. It is a great organization. Uh, and then you have to sit down and the problem with this is that you have to sit down and write the book. <laughs> How was that experience? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I unfortunately can't talk about it in the past tense oh, that's right. when does, because I'm finishing when up is it officially coming out uh, book officially coming out it's a I see part of it available on um, Safari uh, yes no no worries um, it's uh, it's coming out uh, actually in April next year I, I may it may be available from February as an ebook I I don't know but uh, <laughs> But but I am finishing up the manuscript. I will be finished in a month from now um, with all the edits and uh, everything that is happening. So I don't know. It is up to you, Justin. I can definitely uh, like it's it's, uh, it's it's pretty late at night over here in, in Copenhagen. But I can I can definitely stay up for a little while if you want me to go through the process of uh, how this I think, um, how it really works. No, no, just or, for your personal experience as a writer. Um, have you learned anything about yourself? Yeah, I, I have uh, uh, a bunch of stuff. I think, first and foremost, I think it's not it's not pathetic when people write in the preface that they are thankful to their spouse for letting them write a book. That is that is something that is generally very very hard for a marriage or like family a couple life. to experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I miss my family a lot, even though they are right here in the same house as me. That is not very fun. But uh, <clears throat> so 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 personally, that has been one of the big sacrifices. Sitting here with my laptop for a year, um, I think like. More per not personally, but just f focused only on me. I think that <laughs> when you get to write a book, you think that you're pretty smart and you can do this. Like just like this is just I'm I'm just gonna write this book and that's it's gonna be over soon and 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 I have all these quite good ideas in my head. And then you realize when you put that on paper that maybe your ideas aren't that good. <laughs> maybe you couldn't formulate I have this it that precisely all the time, as you personally, but. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but that's exactly how I felt. I, I, I've pretty much thought of myself, not, I won't say a genius, but I like, you know, I, I could write this book and I definitely couldn't just write this okay. book. So you have to have a good spouse and you have to have like a little bit of an unreality bubble that you live in. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's if, for me, I've been I've been reading writing uh, peer-reviewed uh, papers for for some quite prestigious journals in my time, but but this is my first book, and it's definitely something different. And uh, fortunately, fortunately, um, O'Reilly has they have a, a a bunch of very very good editors. I mean, it's some of the most professional people I've ever met. It's just so professional. That's uh, something special when you work with people they, who really pull you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the editors there are very, very nice. Um, and yeah, it's really something that you shouldn't underestimate, uh, having editors uh, mm-hmm. at that level. Well, listen. So, and I think, yeah. Tell me more. Yeah, so, so it's just uh, <laughs> the last part here is that this has been... Uh, it's been a, it, it's been very very fun writing the book, hard and very fun. I think that one of the best experiences writing the book is that you get to meet such an enormous amount of people that are so talented. I have spoken to so many entrepreneurs that are both extremely wealthy and totally genius. I mean, they're, 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 those guys, those people, they they are the true. Like geniuses out there, they're fantastically intelligent, and they have been very generous and uh, talk. They have talked to me. You know, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of them have reached out uh, without me reaching out to them. It's just wonderful. And I've met a lot of people that just have a lot of great, great ideas. Not necessarily entrepreneurs, but just like bloggers, podcasters, people in the data community that have reached out. And, and it's wonderful to, to have this experience that you meet so many people around the world, from all parts of the world, that are just so bright. It's a wonderful experience to get to talk to so, so, such people. Um, I'm very thankful for that. I think that's been that's been yeah, that's been the best experience. Well, I certainly am feeling it today. It's been great to, to talk to you and uh understand more about your perspective. I think, uh, I think this is just an amazing point of view to bring to the discussion around uh, data catalogs and bring the uh, computer scientists together with the information <laughs> um, and library science experts. So um, thank you so much for joining us and um, look forward to the book coming out in April. Thank you, Jerusalem. Thank you for having me on.